0: Well, I'd invite you to get out your Bibles. I hope you brought one with you, or scroll on your device. We'll be in uh, the Gospel of Mark this morning, and I'd invite you to turn with me to the 14th chapter of Mark. Last week, uh, we started our series, Counting Up to the Cross. And I mentioned earlier that uh, our core groups, they launch uh, tomorrow, in fact, uh, for our spring season. and, And you can sign up for one of those. Uh, out in the foyer. Uh, if you received one on your way in, I'd invite you to take out your core guide. There's a place for you can take notes, and there's some devotionals on the inside of that that will help you walk through the week uh, and stay on uh, kind of the topic and the scriptural references that, that we have on Sunday mornings. So I would invite you into that. Would you stand with me as we uh, look at, at the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 14? Last week, uh, we started off... Uh, this journey, talking about uh, the, the last night uh, the, the, before Jesus was crucified, that Thursday evening when, when he gathered with his uh, disciples to share in the Passover meal, and during that Passover meal meal, he, he, he ter- transformed it, he turned it into what we celebrate as communion and the lord 's Supper. And after that meal, uh, he took his disciples and, and they went for a stroll. And they were going uh, to a place to pray. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning in the 14th chapter, starting in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled "'My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow "'to the point of death,' he said to them. "'Stay here and keep watch.' "'Going a little farther, he fell to the ground "'and he prayed that if possible, "'the hour might pass from him. "'Abba, Father,' he said, "'everything is possible for you. "'Take this cup from me. "'Yet not what I will, but what you will.' "'Then he returned to his disciples.' And he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, "'Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer.' And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders.' Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. We'll leave off the story there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I, I imagine that you have uh, you've heard the uh, saying, if these walls could speak. You heard that one before? If these walls could speak. Uh, back in the summer of 1988 i had the opportunity to go on a summer mission trip and we traveled throughout europe and one of our stops was in munich germany and while we were in munich along with uh, the mission that we were uh, completing we, we went and we toured a place called Dachau. It was one of the... It was the first Nazi concentration camp uh, that was set up, uh, set up actually in 1933, and it was used for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. It was set up initially as <clears throat> a place for uh, political prisoners. During the war, uh, it was expanded and... Um, it was used to house Jews and, and other prisoners of war. Walking through that place may have been the most chilling experience of my life. Uh, it was hard to keep tears from streaming down my cheeks, learning about the, the atrocities that, that happened uh, in that place. I, I just remember strolling through some of the buildings and uh, they have a, a narrative video that's done that, that tells you about the history of, of that place. And I just remember thinking about all of the people, all of the humans who had lived there, who had suffered there, who had died there. I think it was something like 200,000 people we're in and out of that camp during the war years. Uh, it was a place of forced labor, a place where the people were regularly beaten and flogged. They uh, they had a cruel and unusual form of torture for these people. They called it um, they called it pole hanging. And they would tie the prisoners' wrists behind their back like this and then hang them on a pole, oftentimes dislocating both shoulders. This was regular uh, occurrence in this place that people would treat other humans uh, in this way. Uh, these prisoners were so brainwashed that on their way into the gas chambers, they would hand them a stone as a bar of soap and the people didn't think anything of it. He toured the bunk houses, and the beds were about this wide, uh, a little bit shorter than me, and that would be a bed for three people. Why do we treat others like this? I remember specifically thinking about that phrase, if these walls... Could speak. What stories would we hear? What what cries would we hear? What prayers, cries out to God, would come from these walls? I mean, this was a place that um, flight surveillance crews would would fly over this place, and, and the pictures that were taken down they were so high up it looked the, the dead bodies were stacked like piled wood and so it was hard to detect that this was even a concentration camp you know certainly some people survived these places and and they've told their stories but i'm quite certain that we'll never fully understand the evil of this place When I read the gospel accounts of Jesus' last 24 hours, I think about it in, in the same kind of a way. After sharing his Passover meal with the disciples, he, Jesus leads his followers out to the Mount, Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. It was an olive orchard, an olive grove. It's, it's across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, uh, from the upper room where they shared their meal. It was probably a 15 or 20-minute walk. Uh, they probably arrived at 11 or 11.30 at night, which was, in that day and age, that was considered like really late in the night. Uh, This ancient grove of trees, you can go visit it today. The trees are still there. In fact, uh, some of the trees are are aged at uh, 3,000 or so years old. Which means that uh, if the trees are 3,000 years old now, that means that uh, Jesus was praying amongst trees that were already 1,000 years old. I have not personally been to Jerusalem. Someday, perhaps. Perhaps but I know people who have gone. And it's quite the powerful experience to walk through this olive grove imagining, I wonder, if, I wonder if this is the place where Jesus prayed. And as I read these gospel accounts, and this one in particular, if the trees could talk, what would we learn? Oh, I imagine the conversation's would be rather entertaining to listen to. You know, Jesus and, and his disciples, who didn't always get it, and they would argue back and forth about who is the best and who Jesus liked the most. But I imagine those times of, of private conversation and prayer and teaching, oh, what we could learn if those, if those trees could talk hear the questions that the disciples would ask and Jesus answered, hear the doubts that they expressed. Yeah, we'd hear some of their arguments, but I imagine we would hear words of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. See, on this particular night that we read about, we see Jesus' brutal honesty before God. It's a prayer of, it's intense. There's a lot of agony. There's fear that is expressed in Jesus' prayer. Jesus says his heart is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It means he's crushed. His soul is absolutely crushed with the grief that he is experiencing. And so he throws himself on the ground. And, and Luke, if we read Luke's account, Luke says that his, his sweat was like great drops of blood. Have you ever been in a place like this? So deep in despair over something in your life The question of why and is there another way? God, can you remove this burden, this situation from me? Jesus Jesus takes uh, Peter and James and and John with him further into this olive grove. and, And he warns them not to fall into temptation. He says, watch and pray. Don't fall into temptation. And then Jesus goes, oh, maybe a stone's throw further, and he just throws himself on the ground, and he cries out to God, please take this cup from me. I don't want to have to go through this. Please, God, let there be a- another way. I don't know. Some, some people have trouble with this passage of Scripture. Jesus isn't supposed to behave like this, they say, he seems weak, he seems uh, troubled and distressed, and Jesus questions god 's will in this passage, and some people don 't like to have a picture of Jesus that questions God. Some people think that Jesus, as the Son of God well he should be he should face this stoically and, and resolutely and. And and even though it's troubling that, you know, he should just buck up and and take it like a man because that's what he was here on earth to do in the first place. Some people think that. Some people struggle with this inner turmoil that we see in, in the person of Jesus. But historically, the Christian people has affirmed that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. That doesn't mean that Jesus is 50% God and 50% human. It means that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And, and being a fully human would mean that He too would experience our temptations, our range of emotions, and uh, I think that's what Mark is trying to tell us is that Jesus did experience that full range of emotions. I mean, Jesus knew that just in just a, a short time he was likely to be arrested and tried, and, and he knows that the outcome would, would likely include being beaten severely and hung on a cross and crucified and left to die. I can't blame Jesus for being afraid in this, on this evening. And, and, and personally, I'm not at all upset by a passage like this in fact i read words like this and it helps me it comforts me it adds credibility to these accounts to to jesus that my savior is one who isn't asking me to do things that he's not willing to do himself that he he walked through life as a human and he suffered and he died and i know that he knows. Mark's description makes it clear that Jesus walked paths that we often walk, that Jesus knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows what it's like to long for a different outcome. If only things could be different in this suffering, this bondage, this whatever could be lifted and removed from me. Jesus felt that. He knows what it's like to experience sorrow and to feel his heart break. When you walk through times like these, when you pray, you pray to someone who knows. Jesus has been there. You know, oftentimes when people are struggling with with an addiction or... Uh, with a diagnosis, or with a relationship issue. Uh, to help people get through, it's, it's a really good thing to connect people with others who have struggled through the same kind of a thing. Why? Because they know what they're dealing with and can empathize. And the, author of, uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, the letter in, in our New Testament... States, uh, states this case boldly, kind of like Mark does in, in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 7 and 8, says, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, uh, says, This high priest, referring to Jesus, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us in our own times of need. God doesn't just imagine your pain. He knows it. He knows it personally. I'm reading through this passage this week, and, and uh, I really want us to see that there are two competing prayers that are evident in what we read. Now, I know we, we, we only hear the voice of Jesus pray a prayer out loud, but, but there are two prayers that are present here. And before we look at the the two prayers, um, I want to show you something. Matthew and Mark, they both refer to Gethsemane as an olive grove, a group of trees. Luke just says that uh, when Jesus goes out to pray with the disciples, that they go to the Mount of Olives. But John John's Gospel was written quite a few years after these first Gospels, the synoptics that we call them, Matthew, Mark, and and Luke. John writes later, and uh, he goes for the theology and the reasons why and not necessarily uh, the storyline. John says that they went to a garden. Now, that's interesting to me, that John would refer to this night to this time of prayer as happening in a garden you remember how john's gospel starts in the beginning was the word in the beginning we hear that somewhere else in the bible genesis right genesis starts off in the beginning god created where, where did the activity of the first couple chapters of genesis take place in a garden, right? Adam and Eve lived in the garden is what we are told. What happened to them in the garden? They were tempted, weren't they? The devil came to them in the form of a serpent and, and tempted them. And, and as the devil approached them, uh, he, he planted in their minds a question did God really say that to you? Does he really want you to follow this path? Did, do you think that he really meant that? Or do you think that he's just trying to hide something from you? You won't die. I don't think God really said that. Do you, do you think God really said that? We know that Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation. And through that, sin and death entered into our world. And then Adam is representative of all mankind. All of us are represented in in Adam and Eve. So when we look at the Garden of Eden and we look at this temptation and, and we look at how they fell to to that temptation, and, and Satan convinced them that, did God really say that? And they came up with the answer, no, He probably didn't mean it, and our way is probably just as good or, or better than God's. We can, we can do that. It's our story, isn't it? Every person that exists struggles with doing what's right or doing what's wrong. Everyone at some point in their life will find themselves at a crossroads, and you have to determine the right path. And oftentimes, we reject the path of God. We reject going God's way, and we choose to go our own way, which ultimately, like Adam and Eve, it leads to sin, and it leads to death, and it leads to separation from God. God lights His path. God is light in the world. But as humans, sometimes we want to be near the light, but we want to just be a careful distance behind the light, which is God's will. We want to be close, but not fully in it, because we lose control when when we step into the light of, of God's will. So we take our own path. see, everything, every bad, every evil, every Dachau moment in this world happens because humans choose their own way instead of going God's way. Poverty, starvation, racism, hatred, bigotry, war, all of those enter into our world. Evil happens because humans have made a choice to go their own way and and not God's. It's God's will. It's, Sometimes it's challenging. It, it stretches us, and, and sometimes it just makes us a little bit uncomfortable, and, and we don't always like to step into something that's not comfortable, so we'd rather choose our own way that's maybe less resistance and a little bit easier. See, the first prayer that's evident in our passage today, we can look all the way back to that first garden, and Adam's prayer was not your will, God, but mine. That's what Adam and Eve prayed. Not your will, God, Uh, my prayer. My will. My way. And that night, when they're strolling through that olive grove, through that garden, Judas prayed the prayer, not your will, God, it's going to be my way. Peter, who had boldly proclaimed, Lord, even unto death I will stand for you. Peter's prayer was, not your will, God, it's going to be mine. Then there's the religious leaders, the members of the Sanhedrin, the people who were supposed to understand because they had access to all the scriptures and all of the prophecies. They should have seen it coming and listened to Jesus' teaching. They said, not your will, God, it's going to be my way. And all the rest of the disciples Mark said they all fled. They all all ran away. They'd traveled with Jesus for years, listening to him teach and serve and love and warn them that someday this is going to happen, but never fear because I will be raised again. Their prayer that night was, not your will, God. It's going to be my way. Now, think about this. John places Jesus in a garden, right? So, just like Adam and Eve, Jesus faces his own temptation now in a garden. And this isn't the first time that that Jesus has been tempted. Remember way back when Jesus began His ministry, before He did anything in His ministry, He was taken out into the wilderness, and the devil approached Him and and tempted Him three different times through that 40 days uh, in the wilderness, and Jesus rejected every one of those temptations by quoting Scripture. And at the end, when we look at, it, at this story in, in Luke's gospel, Luke says that the devil left him until an opportune time came. Well, let me tell you, the opportune time happens in our story that we read today when Jesus' passion begins with this moment of agonizing prayer in Gethsemane when satan returns to tempt jesus to go his own way again so jesus is in this garden and he's facing this time of temptation and, and and we know that because he tells the disciples in verse 38 keep watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know all those bold proclamations of your loyalty to me? That's a a really nice thing to say, but your flesh is weak, and you won't be able to fulfill that. In other words, you, you talk big, but act small. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't succumb to that temptation. Jesus warns him. See, Satan comes in, and he whispers in Jesus' ear, You don't have to take this route. There's another one. Maybe it sounded like, you know what? If your father God really loved you, do you think this is really the only way possible for him to accomplish this? I'm sure there's another way. You're doing such great work, Jesus. Look at all the people you've healed and fed and ministered to. All of the teaching that you've done, those are so awesome, and, and don't you think that you could just continue this on, on your own? See, the devil is really seductive and, and smooth, and he just wants to plant small hints of doubt into each and every one of our minds. He's, he wants access to you, to your thinking, to your thoughts, to just get a little morsel in there that's seductive and smooth. and and gets your attention. He wants to convince you how great it would be if you were to follow your own path. You can choose money, or you can choose sex, or you can choose your career, or you can choose to be popular. And, And the devil doesn't tempt you with things that are beyond your reach. The devil will tempt you with things that you can actually accomplish, that you can actually achieve. Because if it's too far removed, it's far-fetched, and we never think that we could do that. So the devil comes in and works his way in, and he tempts, you, tempts us to do things that are within our power to make happen. So the garden temptations that are evident in this story sound a lot like the ones that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus, you can feed a lot of people. Look at all the the good that you can do. Jump off this building, put on a a dazzling display of your power, and the angels will rescue you, and and people will just be enamored with that power, and, and you'll have this instant market share and following. Do it your own way. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world and give you authority over all of them if you'll bow to me that path that God has you on, you, you, can, you can choose your own. See, in the garden, Satan whispers, you don't have to die. Jesus is wrestling with this destiny when he's flat on the ground before God and crying out. I imagine... Jesus hears Satan say something like, you've done such great work. You're going to turn this over to your disciples who can't even stay awake. Just tell the people who are going to arrest you what they want to hear. It'll get them off the hook. It'll spare your life. And we know that Jesus prays God, Father, Abba, Daddy, Papa, take this cup away from me. Let it pass. If there's another way, make it so. He prays that prayer, but he follows that up with this. Not my will, but yours. That's a different prayer from the first one that we identified. Not your will, God, but mine. Jesus doesn't pray that. He turns that around. He says, not my will, God. Yours be done. I lay aside my rights. It's your will that I will pursue more than anything else. Jesus' prayer is honest. He doesn't want to die. Prayer is asking to asking for God to change his mind on something, those aren't considered insubordinate prayers, but they actually display a deep trust in in a God who actually listens to prayer and and will listen to requests and and weigh it against and reconcile it with his overall will. And and if there's a way to answer a prayer, God will in fact do that. But God's, I need to remind us all that God's vision is so much larger than ours. Sometimes we, we think that we know the best outcome and God sees something different and we need to rest and trust in Him to know that, that His vision is, is greater than our own and sometimes He can see how something that may be a painful and uncomfortable He can use for good and, and for His own glory and maybe it provides a, an opportunity for us to witness to somebody else because it opens up conversation. See, there's, God's vision is, is so much larger than ours. Jesus' prayer isn't counter to God's purpose, but explores the limits of of that boundary without crossing over the boundary. Might there be another way, Father? Can this cup pass from me? Jesus' prayer is an affirmation that God is all-powerful and He can do all things. He could deliver Jesus. But Jesus also trusted God that if there wasn't another way, that he would submit to his will. Not my will, but yours. See, our, our prayers can be our prayers can be honest too. They should be honest too. I mean during our dark nights, when when fear cripples us and and sets in, when when we just have this overwhelming sense of of grief, when, when we don't know how we're gonna take another step and and carry on when we want God to remove the burden or trial or suffering, the times that, that you face where you can't eat, you can't sleep, and, and, and the thing that's, that's getting you down, it's just all-encompassing, and it consumes all of your mind space, you can put this to God. You can pour out your soul to God. You can be honest with Him. You don't have to worry uh, that you can't talk to God like this because Jesus is our role model, and, and He poured His heart out to God in agony and, and grief. You don't have to face suffering stoically. You don't have to face suffering and, and buck yourself up and and... And just think that you only need a little bit more faith. Jesus didn't think that way. Jesus didn't put on a mask of his feelings. You don't have to put on a mask of your feelings. You can pour your struggles out to God and tell him what you think. I came across this uh, quote. It's a 17th century Frenchman. His name is Francois Fenelon. He defines prayer in this way. He says, Tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell God your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, and how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. That's a prayer of just open, brutal honesty before God. And above all else, I think our prayer should be honest. See, where Adam failed in the garden, uh, when we think about Jesus in the garden, the outcome is a little bit different. Jesus triumphs where Adam failed. Adam's prayer was, not your will, God, but mine, and Jesus prays, not my will, but yours. See, Jesus is beginning to reverse the curse of of Eden. Jesus is obedient to God, and in that, He shows us a, a different way. He shows us God's way. That sin entered through Adam and Eve, and through one person in Jesus, that begins to be reversed, and we will find freedom and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Not my will be done by yours Father, This is a passage that well, quite frankly it calls us out it, it forces us to a decision point: Are we really going to do this thing called Christianity, or are we not? Do we really want to follow Jesus, no matter the cost or not are we Do we find ourselves just more content playing games and and doing our own thing. Um, I would encourage us, starting with me, that this become our prayer every day. Not my will, but yours, God. Maybe it's every moment, every decision point where we're challenged. I mean, what does this look like when it hits the street and in, in the roads of life that we travel? What does it look like when we say, not my will, God, but yours be done? It looks like honesty. It looks like integrity. It looks like uh, choosing God's way, even, even when it's challenging. So we think of this prayer when, when we have a disagreement or an argument with our spouse or a friend. It's a uh, we think about this prayer when there's an ugly competition going on uh, in the office. It's, it's, it's uh, thinking and praying this prayer when we're confronted with doing the right thing or the wrong thing in life. I, I remember, this is a small, trivial kind of example. A couple years ago, uh, I was going to take uh, my girls to a movie. And I got online found the tickets, and uh, I was mistaken on the age of, of the difference between a, a kid's ticket and an adult ticket. The adult tickets were $2 more. So I, I, I thought we qualified for an adult and two kids, so I bought an adult and two kids. So I get to the movie theater, and on the sign it says uh, kids are like 13 and under. And so I owe the movie theater $4. I've already got the tickets. The line is long, so we stand through the. We we get in line and get all the way up to the counter. and say, you know what? I I made a mistake online. I, I'm sorry. I I need to pay you four dollars for for these tickets because I need three adult tickets. And the the attendant at the counter looked at me like I was nuts. Like, well, these would work. Like, I know, but I, I made a mistake clearly, and and I. And I owe you the four dollars, and I just want to make sure that it's right. Well, that's a small thing, but there's people who are watching the integrity of how you live. And if you can't practice these kinds of things with small things, when the big ones come along, it's, it's going to be really difficult to, to pray, "Not my will, God, but yours." Not, not my way, God, but your way. I want to go that way. And I've told you the story of, of how I landed in the ministry. I owned a business in Chicagoland, and, and I really felt like God was, was leading me towards selling that business and entering into the full-time ministry. And so as that progressed, and, and I presented that to my regional people uh, in the Chicago area, they, they came back and they looked at me like, you're nuts. You are just flat-out crazy to sell what you have, the market share you've developed, the customer base that you have, the income where you're at, you're going to trade all of that, everything that you have built to go work in a church? We don't get it. Think about that overnight. I'll call you tomorrow. Like, you don't really need to call me. I get a phone call the next day. Uh, Dave, you know that territory that we've been kind of talking about for several years, but it's never been able to to work out, to add that to yours? uh, Well, we'll give it to you. And and, and, you know some of these other circumstances that we've told you time and again that we really can't do anything about because we don't have any just cause? Well, we'll make it happen just like that. How did all of this change? So I'm confronted with going God's way and entering into ministry or taking my way, tripling the size of my business, having the ability to, a lot of, to do a lot of really good things, to have a significant jump in income, which you could do a whole lot of really good things for the kingdom with. And I would, oh, by the way, I'd have control over all that. And it would make me look better. And I'd be more successful in the eyes of the world. you can't pray the prayer, not my way, your way, God, with the small things, when a situation like that confronts you, you have no prayer of, of standing up to that kind of temptation. Not my will, God. Yours be done. And I won't pretend. <laughs> I won't pretend that I make the right decisions all the time. I know better than that. I know that sometimes I fail to do the good that I'm supposed to do. That that I sometimes want to avoid the things that might bring discomfort and pain and sometimes I just want to run away and hide and I want to take the path of of least resistance and sometimes what God calls us to isn't how we would define fun. It may be difficult, it may be risky, it, it may bring some suffering and pain and and sometimes I just want to fall asleep like the disciples. I want to be spiritually drowsy with heavy eyes and, and a groggy heart. And I just want to go to sleep and take a nap and avoid what God would want me to do. See, the, the disciples fell asleep. You, you heard that part, right? Tertullian says... Uh, Susceptibilities to weakness and sloth are the footprints of the devil. Sleep to sleep is to stop praying. To to sleep is to be unable to recognize what's going on. To sleep is even to assume a certain level of confidence, like, hey, we've arrived and now we can kick our feet up and, and rest a little bit and, and take a nap. The disciples failed Jesus miserably in this story. Their spirit was willing. They had their heads nodding, yes, we're with you, we're for you, we're going your way, Jesus. But, but their lips were praying and, and, and their, their body was acting out a completely different prayer, which was, uh, I think we're going to go our own way, Jesus. Not, not your will, but ours. They were, they were praying the prayer of Adam. Jesus' prayer is completely different. The good news is, is that um, the failure in this instance isn't permanent. That when we lapse and when we go our own way, that Jesus is always there to welcome us back into the fold to redeem us to speak words of life in us. He doesn't he doesn't point a finger of blame at them. He warns them and we know that after the resurrection, uh, you know, he meets them and he greets them uh, with open and loving arms. And so when when we fail, which we will, that we know that there is grace in the person of Jesus and that He will forgive us and redeem us and, and, and warn us again, you know, pray this prayer, not my will, but Yours, God. That's the prayer you need to be praying, He'll say. And when you mess up, you can confess that to Him and not feel guilty about it any longer. It turned the course back to following God's way. I don't know about you, but it, it forces us into a choice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back, and we'll, we'll close with a song. Um, but there, there's two prayers that are evident in, in this story that we read in Mark. There's two prayers evident in the garden. W- which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to go your way? Or will you too pray like Jesus did and say, not not my will, God, but yours be done. People of God said, amen.